Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Today's guest is Robert Millette, who has written, directed, designed, and acted in theater, film, and television for over 30 years. His credits in various jobs include Xena, Warrior Princess, Blue Crush, and his own, Jacks or Better, which won Dances with Film's Best Screenplay Award in 2000. Robert's novel, Billy Bobble Makes a Magic Wand, is available on Amazon from Elephant's Bookshelf Press. Robert vlogs for From the Right Angle. Robert joined today to talk about how working in film and television taught him skills that translated over to novel writing, and how working with small indie publishers can be beneficial. Born to privilege, trained for command, destined for danger. Master and Commander meets Sarah J. Moss in a seafaring adventure of duty, love, magic, and a princess's quest to protect her kingdom on her own terms. Air and Ash, an addicting new YA fantasy adventure by Alex Lydell. You've worked extensively in film and television, writing, acting, designing, and directing Mm -hmm. on shows like Xena, Warrior Princess which is awesome. Can you talk a little bit about how working in visual arts has influenced your novel writing? The biggest thing, really, it's both theater and from what I learned in Xena. When you're doing a performance, whether it's television with commercials or a play with an intermission, your audience has the opportunity to get up and leave and not come back. One of the things that all the producers on Xena were big about were the act breaks. The hero had to be in life or death danger before we cut to commercial. Mm-hmm. And they did such a great job of that. If you're going to give your readers the opportunity to put the book down, you'd better take that opportunity away. You know, you're going to make it so exciting that you hook them again. Uh, yeah, I'll just read to the end of the chapter. And then it's like, boom, no, you won't. You're going to read that next page. That's the big thing. There's a whole bunch of little stuff. When I made my film, I sat with the editor the whole time and learned tiny little tricks like if a scene is running slow in a movie, you might make it longer to feel shorter. There's a thing in editing that's a cut on motion. If you're on an actor's face and he's very still and you cut away from that to something else, that's going to slow it down. But if that actor moves their eye even and you cut on that motion, even if it's a little further away from the cut, It'll feel faster. And that was a little thing that I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I just kind of held that. And then I was on um, Agent Query Connect. Somebody posted something about, wow, I just, I've got 27 suddenlies in my manuscript and I just cut all but one of them. And I was like, well, that's interesting. And I looked at my manuscript and I had suddenly everywhere. Screenwriters use suddenly constantly. Suddenly the cat jumps from behind the tree. Well, if you put in the suddenly, then whatever follows it is no longer sudden. The reader's prepared for something to happen. But if you just say, the cat jumped from behind the tree, then that becomes sudden to the reader. It's Mm kind of like cutting on motion. Those little tiny things, they all translate. It's all storytelling. It's fun to learn the crafts of each medium. That's so fascinating. I'm reading The Count of Monte Cristo right now. 
Uh, that story is one of my oh. favorites. Being a dyslexic kid, I haven't sat down and actually read the book. I need to. I didn't know it was that good. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I discovered that it's very, very difficult to find an unabridged version of The Count of Monte Cristo because it is so long because he was paid by the word. It was a serial in the paper. That book is 1,200 pages long. <laughs> and what you're saying about cut on action is true in this 1,200-page novel. I cannot put this thing down. Oh, that's, that's awesome. That's another thing with the serial format, which I love, and it's actually coming back. When you're facing a serial format, you've got that same thing. At the end of your magazine or newspaper or online entry, the audience leaves, and it might be for a week. And you've got to hook them enough so that they're waiting with bated breath for that next page. I love the serial format. Dumas was just awesome at that. He had a whole writing machine that was equal to Hollywood. That was one of the criticisms of him, though, because, I, of course, I'm a total geek. So I read the foreword in my book, and they were saying that they actually referred to him as a novel machine. In the 1800s, he was not considered literature because everything was plot-driven. His novels were considered to be children's novels because it was all plot. No child is going to read that book, let me tell you. <laughs> but they love the movies at the same time if you look at the three musketeers everybody loves all the characters he actually wasn't just plot driven all the characters are so rich god if you're an actor and you get to play one of those except the national theater did the most god awful production of that oh my god i saw that right out of college my theater degree was dripping wet the ink was not dry on my degree, and I go see this production of The Count of Monte Cristo, and, and I cannot believe that they made it so slow. Filled it with so many images, and I'm sitting there, I've just gotten my degree in theater, and I'm going, I don't understand this. Which means it's not me. Intellectually get all of the references that are put into this, because Eugene O'Neill's dad played The Count of Monte Cristo so long that... He hated the role because that's all he ever got to play and that's all anybody ever wanted to see. And so there were all these references to Eugene O'Neill's dad. I felt sorry for like somebody who didn't have their degree in theater, goes to the play and he sees this thing that he can't understand. He's going to think it's him. They're not going to get their money's worth, which I think is the worst thing. And I wish I could say to all of them, no, 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 this is just bad. You know, the action-packed original that all the critics say is bad, that's actually really good. In the back of my head is, I've got to write a story that's worth money to the person who's reading it. To the person that earned that money. Exactly. Oh, I want to go back to what you were saying about cereal. I think that the cereal delivery system is fantastic. I'm very interested just in the idea of Netflix in some way having ruined that waiting period for us and that we get to just slam all our episodes of whatever we want to watch. It's two distinct ways of enjoying your story. When you allow yourself to be completely immersed like that, I think that you excuse some things or you don't notice some things because your senses and your logic and your brain is entirely immersed in this world and that sometimes they can sell you some things that normally you wouldn't swallow. If you had to wait a week and you got to think about it, you might not, you might be like, wait, 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 wait a minute. No, that actually doesn't make sense. <laughs> when I was doing theater as a kid, 
after the play was done a month later, I'd be sitting in the bathroom and I would go, oh, you know what I should have done? And I hate that. I'm constantly trying to make sure that I have that thought while I'm creating the work and not a year later. I also screen for Dances with Films, a film festival out here. I'll watch a submission. I call it raw art. No one's seen these movies. They're just being submitted to film festivals. And you'll see a scene that's laying flat. And I keep thinking to myself, if I was on the set or if I was writing that scene, would I know that it's flat? Would I know that it's not working? And I worry about that so much. I'd like to think that I would. If it is laying flat, could I fix it? Writing, it's kind of easy because you've got time. But if you're on a set and you've got the actors there and the scene is laying flat, what do you do to fix it? If a scene is laying flat, then increase the obstacle. Make whatever the the main character is doing more difficult. Make it harder for him or her to get what they want. That will immediately spark the scene. Oh, what's his name? Wrote West Wing. Oh, um, Sorkin? Sorkin, yes. A lot of times he'll sit down and just write some great dialogue. He's just writing away. Oh, this is going great. And he goes back and looks at it and goes, I didn't write a scene. No, there's nothing happening here. It's just people talking. And you have to go back and make it a scene. I think that's important for us as artists to know. It can be intellectually interesting, but is it a scene? Well, and it can also have some really witty banter or repartee, but are we learning anything? Are we moving forward? That's that's always hard. Right, right. With all this background in film and theater, what made you decide to become a novelist? Or was that something that you had evolved side by side with theater and film? No, actually, I fought it tooth and nail. Um, (laughs) Okay, I don't blame you. Doing theater in Los Angeles is interesting because every now and then you run across someone who kind of will come into your theater group or come into your life and says, uh, yeah, I wrote the screenplay and I'm having trouble selling the screenplay. So I turned it into a stage play and I'm going to do that so that I can sell it as a screenplay. And they don't know anything about theater. And it just pisses off everybody who's like, you know, my art's not your stepping stone. And the reason why it's not selling as a movie is because it sucks. (laughs) You know, you have to know the medium you're working in. You can't just go, oh, it's a movie, now it's a play. You have to respect what makes a play a good play and a movie a good movie. And and I had a screenplay that I'm still trying to sell as a novel. was getting a lot of attention. A lot of people were telling me it was good. It's a big space opera. I got a manager off of it, two managers off of it, and everybody said, this is great, but it's so big, it needs an audience before it gets made. Have you thought about turning it into a novel? And I was like, no, I'm not going to be that guy. I am not going to be that guy. No, no, no. And my, my dad had been a struggling novelist all of his life. Still alive, by the way, and still writing. So I finally decided, okay, I'll adapt this into a novel, but I'm not going to be that guy. I am going to learn. I'm going to take this story and make the novel the best version of the story. I think that's the strength of the novel is that you can really get into the depth of everything. And so I did a draft of a novel, and I worked with my dad on editing that, which taught me a ton, the whole thing on passive verbs and all that kind of stuff, which was interesting because as an actor, one of my acting teachers in college handed out a sheet of active verbs. If you're in a scene, he talked about an I want. I want to fill in the blank. The blank is going to be a verb, but I can't because, and that is going to be your obstacle. We were always looking for active verbs. You know, you're looking for visceral things that make you move. 
And so when my dad was talking about active verbs, it's both conjugation and the word itself. Okay, I can relate. Boom, I, I can start taking what I know from other medium and plugging them into this, translate from one to the other. And so I worked really hard on polishing that up. That manuscript is what got me an agent who's fantastic, and she's my first fan, working her behind off on trying to get this thing sold for almost going on a decade. I first wrote the screenplay in 1996, so, but everybody likes it. I know the feeling. I've got one that I think I'm going on 15 years. It's my little redheaded stepchild, and I came up with the perfect mashup for it the other day. Like, I'm still pushing this thing. It's if John Hughes wrote The (laughs) X-Files. That's a great pitch. And everyone that reads it loves it. This is great. It's not going to sell. I knew that Billy Bobble would not sell. I showed him my agent, and she was like, yeah, this is... It's adult. I write for myself. I write for whoever picks up the book. Hopefully whoever paid for the book. And that gets back to, I want to give them their money's worth. And I knew it wouldn't sell. And I'd had, with you, I had published several short stories with uh, Elephant Bookshelf Press, who are just awesome. I call them the the, uh, sun records of publishing. Matt got in touch and said, hey, I'm doing another anthology. Do you have any more short stories? And I didn't have anything in the drawer and I didn't want to write anything. And I said, no, I don't, but I have this novel that nobody's going to buy. He said, let me take it. Let me look at it. And he read it and liked it. So we published that. And it was nice to have a small press to skate around the corporate press. I don't have anything against the corporate structure. It gives us all a living and, and everybody there is working hard and they're doing great stuff. But it does not encourage risk-taking. If you don't publish that controversial novel, then your kids still get to go to college because you've kept your job. But it takes those elephant bookshelf press and those smaller areas to expand out and to, to take risks. And that will then feed the corporate structure. The corporate structure will go, oh, look, that worked. Getting back to Count of Monte Cristo and it being a kid's book, back then they didn't micro-market. I think it's insane to say, oh, this is a middle grade book. So you've now cut out everyone who's not between the ages of eight and and 14 or whatever it might be. They're so targeting the micro thing when it's not hard for a good writer to write for the entire family. And I actually learned that from Days of Our Lives. I was doing an under five on Days of Our Lives. It was under five lines, you know, basically an extra. This tour group came by. And they're walking the halls, and they see one of the stars from Days of Our Lives. I don't remember which one. And she was great. She went out and talked to them and blah, blah, blah. And she said, which story do you follow? And that blew my mind because I thought you had to watch the whole thing. Some people, they watch certain characters, and they follow those characters. If you look at something like Harry Potter, and I I try to do it in Billy Bobble. I'm not comparing the two, but um, you put in characters of different ages, and different through lines, looking at Harry Potter because everyone's read it, you know, you've got the backstory is, is all about adults and adults doing adult things. And the kid's story is their thing. You see the adult story from the kid's point of view, which is fun for everybody, from the right angle. I wrote a whole thing about, let's see if we can get a family bookshelf, good for all ages. I couldn't agree with that more. Harry Potter is a great example where everyone was reading that book. I resisted. I did not pick up Harry Potter until the fourth book because I was just mystified as to why all these adults were completely drawn in by a children's book. And then I read the first one and I was like, yeah, that's not a, actually a children's book. <laughs> it's amazing and I love it, but it's a book for everyone. 
I've come to a point in my career when people talk to me, I just say that I'm a novelist. I don't say that I write YA and it's not because I feel like there's a stigma attached, although there is, but it's because most of my fans are adults. I think that it's interesting that you're saying the micro-targeting of age ranges is off-base somewhat, and I agree with you. I think that it is a little bit mad to cut out three-quarters of the population of the Earth. Exactly. It's like, I'm not going to sell this book to other people. I'm only going to sell it to 14-year-olds. And if you're 15, you cannot read this book. If you go on from the right angle, I kind of lay out the whole plan of you keep stuff to what you would see in public. You keep sex to what you would see in public. You keep the language PG. And if you look at The Count of Monte Cristo, then all that action, kids love all that action. And adults see themselves as that old man in the prison. And also, God knows, wanting revenge is just something that everyone of every age can relate to. It's a universal truth. Harry Potter particularly has a lot of universal truths in it. Coming up, Robert on writing your story for the sake of the story, not a micro-targeted audience. And advice for aspiring writers on how to process critiques without sacrificing their voice. Being a teen in America can be a nightmare. From bullies to love gone wrong and first jobs, a lot can happen to scar someone. But the stakes grow higher in these terrifying tales where monsters, real and imagined, claim your sanity and your life. Zombies, serial killers, imaginary friends, werewolves, witches, and much more are the monsters that inhabit these stories. Feed your inner monster with My American Nightmare, Women in Horror Anthology by Azura Knox, perfect for fans of American Horror Story. So I want to go back to talking about Elephant's Bookshelf Press for a little bit, just to give some background. I've talked before on this podcast about Agent Query Connect, which is a forum for aspiring writers and published writers hang out there as well. It's where I met R.C. Lewis, who's one of my guests, and I met Robert there too, and a couple other people as Matt Sinclair, who is chief elephant officer, chief elephant <laughs> officer. That's correct. He is the CEO of Elephant's Bookshelf Press, which is his indie press that he started up in New Jersey. Robert and I and Rachel and a few other people, we all have short stories in some of his anthologies. I've read your shorts. You cover so many different genres. You, you've got horror, dark themes and lost love. So you write broadly. And then you have your Billy Bobble, which, as you say, could be read by any audience, but has the middle grade main characters. So you write broadly and you write for different audiences. So how do you market yourself or develop a distinct brand when you have a presence in multiple places? You know, God knows if we knew that, we would all be rich. And it is so difficult, you know, when I go to Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators and people say, what do you write? What they want to hear back is picture book, middle grade, chapter book. It's like, I want to say, I write stories. I write science fiction. Middle grade is not an answer to what do you write. That might be who you write for. It does become difficult. And every time somebody asks me that question and I struggle and they look at me like, why are you struggling? <laughs> it's just like, because I, I don't want to give you the answer that you're looking for. And a lot of those short stories, they came out of drawers. The one about going to the idea store. I'd gone to see Harlan Ellison speak. God, this is in like 1982. 
and he was speaking and people say, where do you get your ideas? And he said, oh, I order them from an idea store. That struck me as funny. And I wrote this story about a kid going into an idea store and there are all these horrible ideas that are in there that are available to buy or trade. And I never found a good ending for that one, but I think I kind of tied it up a little bit. Again, that's that's nice about Elephant Bookshelf Press and small presses is that it doesn't have to be perfect. It's like the old Elvis songs getting back to Sun Records, you know. Some of them some of them just aren't aren't great, you know. But man, they're fun. The all different kinds of stuff, I have no idea. I don't know how to market things. The thing that I can count on gets back to that value. If my name is on something, I would like people to know that's going to be entertaining. That's going to be worth the money. So what do I write? I try to write stuff that's worth the money. I agree with you. I also struggle when people say, what do you write? Because they are looking for me to say, I write YA. That is misleading. I write for everyone and I do write very dark. And sometimes people will pick up my books because they're expecting something lighter because they expect it to be written for teens. I'm writing this story. The characters might be teenagers because that's what the story needed. I'm not necessarily writing for teens. I'm writing for whoever wants to read this book. I'm writing for this story, and this story wants me to be really heinously dark and gross. <laughs> Going back to Count of Monte Cristo and Kidnapped and all of these things that if you do a search for YA on Amazon, you're going to get those classics, and they are so dark, so wonderfully dark. Oh, yes. Unapologetic. Yeah, yeah. That's what makes them so good. I mean, if Bambi didn't make you cry and scare the bejesus out of you, it wouldn't be Bambi. You got to go there. You got to get Salvador Dali into your Snow White. Space Opera I talked about, I'm, I'm working on book two right now and working with a writer's group, which is just awesome. Talk about finding your voice. And, and when you get a note that's counter to your voice, and this is for young writers, it's so important to listen to the note particularly if you get notes in that same area from different angles. Listen to the note, but decide if it's part of your voice and it's going to stay, or if they're right, or if it's coming from so many different people. They are right, but you have to find a way to fix it in your voice and not make it what they want it to be. My rule of thumb is if one person says it, it's an opinion. If two people say it, I have to take it very seriously. And if three people tell me, then they're right. And I am wrong that it's not working. I will use two or three different critique partners. If all of them are telling me this is not working, it's like, okay, then it's not working. I've got to find a way to fix it. But you are absolutely right in that that is how you process feedback. How do I fix this my way? Not how would Rachel fix it? How would Kate fix it? How would Mindy fix it? You have to learn that because when you're a young writer and you get feedback, you're so anxious to please. I think it goes two different ways. You're so anxious to please. And if the person that is giving you feedback, if you perceive them to be better at this craft than you are, you might take it a little more to heart when they might not actually know what is best for your story. You do. Or a young writer who is so convinced of their own superiority who will not see that the criticism is accurate. I think those are the two different paths. Yeah, those are the two extremes. Exactly. Those are the two extremes, and you have to find the middle. There's so many filmmakers who are just, no, no, I'm right. You know, you can give them notes, and, and I can see in their eyes that they are not listening. There's some things for which 
particularly if you're a young writer and, and you're talking to somebody who's got a lot of experience. There are some things for which the creator is just wrong. If you're working in an action genre, you cannot have your hero lose. You have to figure out a win in there somewhere. And yes, they can lose early in the story and come back and win later. That's almost a requirement. If you're a young writer and somebody says, no, you can't do that, and they're experienced, and they're talking about a plot point, not a voice thing, like a Joseph Campbell structure, then yeah, listen. There are things like structure that you're speaking of that experience is one of the only ways to really thoroughly learn something. And you do have to listen to those voices. I was at a I think I was speaking at a library, speaking about writing and becoming published. And it was a kind of a writer's course. And there was a guy in the audience who asked me if you can still query through snail mail. And I was like, well, yes, I mean, you can. I have no idea why you would want to. I wouldn't. You're illustrating to the agent right there that you're not available on email and that is unattractive to them. He was like, then I guess my follow-up question is, can you submit a manuscript that's handwritten? And I just went, no. No, you cannot. No, you cannot. I was like, I'm sorry, you cannot. I don't care if it's War and Peace. Well, War and Peace wouldn't sell, but you know what I'm saying. It's like, it doesn't matter how good it is. If it is handwritten, you are shooting yourself in the foot. And he was cool. He was cool. Like, he accepted it, but I could tell that he didn't like it. Even Jack Kerouac, you know, they they talk about him typing on the paper towel rolls because he didn't like changing the paper. He did retype all of those onto regular paper. He did not submit the paper towel rolls. Last question. You already talked a little bit about you're working on the second book to your space opera. So I want to ask you just what's up next for you and where people can find you online. And I've got a web page. If you send me a message there, I'll get emailed and that'll be great. I think it's rsmolette.com. Mostly I'm on Facebook talking politics, bit of a liberal bent. What I'm doing now, my agent, Emmanuel Morgan at Stonesong, who is the best. And we have been trying to sell this space opera for the long... I mean, I have sit, hit so many long fly balls on this one. It's just driving me crazy. I'll tell this story. It's a long version of the answer, but... I met her through a pitch fest, and I'd, I'd pitched to four agents, and I got four requests for fulls. And one of them was Cherry Wiener, who's big in the science fiction world. She's huge. And I just love talking with her. She's an absolute sweetheart. I sent her the manuscript, and she called me, and she said, I love this. This is absolutely great, but it's not science fiction. I was like, what do you mean it's not science fiction? It's, a, it's Xena Warrior Princess meets Star Wars. Come on. You know? I'm not trying to break new ground here. It's just fun and it's sci-fi. She said, no, it's YA. And you want it to be YA. But I don't do YA. Oh, so she passed, you know, on this book that she loved because she loved it so much she didn't think she could sell it. Right after that, Emmanuel called me. I signed with her. She thought I might skew middle grade because I've got a YA-aged hero and a middle grade sidekick who is the narrator. All I've ever heard is, I don't know what shelf to put this on. This month, we're going out with it unapologetically as science fiction because science fiction has now become the thing. I'm so looking forward to get passes for some other reason because science fiction, it goes on the science fiction shelf. That's the shelf it goes on. Can we skip to whether it's a good book or not? (laughs) It's a wonderful story. It illustrates so much about all the pitfalls that have nothing to do with how good your book is. Yes, yes. So that's what I'm looking forward to is what shelf does it go on? And in the meantime, I'm writing, polishing up book two, 
which is a lot of fun and so hard. You know, a second book is so daunting. The fear, because, you know, you've worked on the first one so hard and for so many years, polished it until there's just not a rough spot on it. I have this fear of selling a book and going, okay, they need book two in a year. Are you kidding me? It took me 15 years to do the first one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm polishing that up. And actually, we've, Emmanuel and I have talked about the possibility of doing a serial publication with book one, but we want to see how, see how the science fiction community reacts to it. And science fiction and serial go very well together. So, so we'll see. Right now, we're calling it Dark Star Warrior. Dark Star Warrior, the Morian treasure. So keep an eye out for it. Particularly if you're a publisher, keep an eye out for it. (laughs) (laughs) Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting gofundme.com and searching for Writer Writer Pants on Fire or visit the blog by going to writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer Writer Pants on Fire where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist. <laughs>